0: You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au.
1: Romans, chapter 1. Greetings from Paul. This letter is from Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, chosen by God to be an apostle and sent out to preach his good news. God promised this good news long ago through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. The good news is about his Son, In his earthly life he was born into King David's family line and he was shown to be the Son of God when he was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. He is Jesus Christ our Lord. Through Christ God has given us the privilege and authority as apostles to tell Gentiles everywhere what God has done for them so that they will believe and obey him bringing glory to his name. And You are included among those Gentiles who have been called to belong to Jesus Christ. I'm writing to all of you in Rome who are loved by God and are called to be His own holy people. May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. God's good news. Let me say first that I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith in Him is being talked about all over the world. God knows how often I pray for you. Day and night, I bring you and your needs in prayer to God, whom I serve with all my heart by spreading the good news about His Son. One of the things I always pray for is the opportunity, God willing, to come at last to see you, for I long to visit you so I can bring you some spiritual gift that will help you grow strong in the Lord. When we get together, I want to encourage you in your faith, but I also want to be encouraged by yours. I want you to know, dear brothers and sisters, that I planned many times to visit you, but I was prevented until now. I want to work among you and see spiritual fruit just as I have seen among other Gentiles. For I have a great sense of obligation to people in both the civilized world and the rest of the world, to the educated and uneducated alike. So I'm eager to come to you in Rome too, to preach the good news. For I am not ashamed of this good news about Christ, it is the power of God at work saving everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Gentile. This good news tells us how God makes us right in His sight. This is accomplished from start to finish by faith. As the scriptures say, it is through faith that a righteous person has life.
0: Yesterday was actually 10 years to the day since I was ordained in the Anglican Church and. I've never in those 10 years attempted a series going through the book of Romans. And so um, part of that is intimidation. Part of it, I think, is just reverence. Like for me, this book has, if you can quantify these kind of things, I guess it's the book out of all of the books that have ever been written that's had the most impact on my life, on my faith. And so there's this idea that I don't want to mess it up. Um... I was reading through a guy you might know named John Calvin, 16th century reformer from Switzerland and he, he, in his commentary on Romans, he says this, he says, it is therefore presumptuous and almost blasphemous to turn the meaning of scripture around without due care, as though it were some game that we were playing. That's what I don't want to do. I don't, I don't want to come at this like it's some kind of game, like it's some, some kind of toy that that I get to play with, and you guys are a captive audience. and right, We don't want to twist Scripture. It's God's Word. We want to have reverence for it. But at the same time, we shouldn't be afraid to open it up and just ask God to do what He wants to do in and through us. So that's what I want you to, you to be praying about during this series, that God would just do what He wants to do in this time, that I wouldn't get in the way of it, and that our hearts wouldn't be closed off to it. So. This, this book's meant a lot to me and, um, and you know, if there's a pile of theologically significant people in the world and I'm at the very bottom, just under the, the ground, right, just at the very bottom, the, the people at the top, the people who've had the most impact on human history, not just church history, but human history, have been massively affected by this book. So. Go back to the 4th century, you've got a guy named Augustine. You would know him today as Saint Augustine. There are schools and churches named after him everywhere. He was a guy who has had a massive impact, again, not just on church, but on global culture. And uh, in the summer of 386, he was just at the end of his tether. He was doubting his salvation, he was doubting his value as a human being. And he was struggling with a lot of sin, um, especially when it came to sexual sin. He was really had a, a hard time with that. And 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 in the summer of 386, he he read these words or heard them read from Romans chapter 13. All right, this is what it says: Let us behave decently. Paul writes in Romans as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. He heard that and his, his whole perspective on life was changed. His heart was changed. He went from someone who was just constantly struggling with what it meant to be a Christian, to someone who clothed himself with Christ. That's another way of saying make all of life all about Jesus, right? Clothe yourself, saturate yourself with Jesus. And he went on to change the course of history. Fast forward about 1,200 years, you got a monk named Martin Luther, a monk in the Catholic Church, and by his own admission, he doesn't, he's not really a Christian at this point. He, he's a monk because he was caught in a storm one night. He was training to be a lawyer, and he got caught in a storm. And like a good Roman Catholic, he, he called out to St. Anne. I don't know who that is, by the way, but apparently there's an Anne somewhere along the way. And you call out to her if you're in trouble. And so he called out, St. Anne, if you save me from the storm, I, I promise I'll become a monk. And he was saved from the storm, and he became a monk. And... He's good at what he does. He gets appointed to lecture at a university and he's lecturing in the Psalms and he gets to Psalm 31 and verse 1, which says, um, In thy righteousness deliver me. The psalmist who's writing to God, he says, In your righteousness deliver me, save me. And Luther can't, can't get past this, right? He can't figure this out because he knows that God's righteousness is his holiness, his perfection, And so God's righteousness condemns us. It damns us to hell because he's perfect and I'm not. And so you have something imperfect coming before something that's perfect and it's a condemning force, not a delivering force, not a saving force. So he couldn't figure this out. It's like the psalmist, he's got oil and water. They don't go together. In your righteousness, save me. In your righteousness, rescue me. In your righteousness deliver me. And so he couldn't figure it out until he got to the book of Romans, to our passage today. in verse 17 of chapter one, he read this, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, that perfect, holy, other, judge, righteousness, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And this is what he said in response to hearing that. He said, night and day, I pondered it, Until I grasped the truth that the righteousness of God is that righteousness whereby through grace and sheer mercy he justifies us, that is, he makes us righteous by faith. Therefore, I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. This passage of Paul became to me a gateway into heaven. He was saved. He became a Christian after reading that because for the first time he realized that God's righteousness doesn't just condemn us, it also justifies us. So he came up with this beautiful terminology. He said, at the cross you have the great exchange. He says, at the cross Jesus takes our sin on himself, but he doesn't just take our sin, he gives us his perfection. So that life that you've lived, which is Terrible and damnable and broken, he took that and he gave you his perfect life, his life without sin. So he said, Ah, I get it now. All of this comes by faith. We just need to receive the gift of God. And he read it in Romans 1 17. Augustine, one of the greatest figures in human history, let alone church history. Luther, the, the spark for the Protestant Reformation, which has had more of an influence on your life in this culture than you'll ever know. And John Wesley, another, another um, pillar of church history. He was, in 1738, a failed minister and missionary. His view of Christianity was that you had to, you had to disconnect yourself as much as you could from good things in life, so that you could earn your way into God's graces. So he practiced an ascetic life. He, he walked around in rough clothes. He didn't buy gloves or warm clothing in the middle of winter. He, he, he fasted from eating. He, he denied himself all of these things, lived what he thought was a super holy life so that God would love him, so that God would accept him. And it got him to the place where it will get every one of us, which is despair. And depression and he was in this place when he went to a Bible study and someone read aloud Martin Luther's commentary on Romans and he heard these words <clears throat> well he wrote these words while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ that great exchange I felt my heart strangely warmed I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for my salvation, and an assurance was given me that had taken away my sins, even mine. For the first time, he realized he didn't have to earn his way into God's graces, that Jesus' death was enough, big enough, sufficient enough, that he was now accepted by God by faith, not by wearing rough woolen clothing or not drinking, or not smoking, or not, 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 not. He was accepted by faith. And all of these men have had their lives changed, and subsequently our culture has been changed by this book of Romans. It's an incredible book about the gospel, the free gift of salvation through faith in jesus christ so today i just want to do an intro all right it's just going to get us in the door and then we got six months to to explore and to mine the treasures but i want us to get to get us through the door by talking about the author of the letter the audience of the letter and the the main theme of the letter the purpose of it so first of all the author you can read for yourself in in verse one of chapter one the author of the letter says i'm paul Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart from the, for the gospel of God. Now, authorship of um, books of the Bible is often in doubt among scholars, people who spend their whole lives reading the original languages and trying to figure out stuff that, to be honest, would just bore you to death, all right? People like that sometimes doubt whether the person who signed the letter was the one who wrote the letter. When it comes to Romans, no one's in doubt, right? There is no serious scholar today who doubts that the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Romans. So he's our author. And his life, if you don't know it, is an incredible life. In fact, there's a major motion picture coming out on the March the 29th. You'll be able to see it at any, any of the theatres. It's not one of those weird Christian movies that's only on once in like Bacchus Marsh or something, right? It's like a major motion picture. I think it's called The Apostle Paul or something like that, creative title. And and it's about his life because it's an incredible life. Um, We know most about it from the historian Luke, who's one of the greatest historians who's ever lived, who's played in the movie by the guy who played Jesus in The Passion of the Christ. It's a bit confusing. Um, Anyway, he wrote the history of the early church in the book of Acts. And there we meet Paul. He's known as Saul. Um, and he was a piece of work. He was a guy who was educated at the top school in the world in Pharisaism, right? In, in, in legal Judaism. And he was, he was educated in the strictest, Form of Pharisaicalism, and this is this is what got Jesus killed. Right, Jesus came, spoke out against the religious establishment, spoke out against the Pharisees who'd made faith all about law abiding and not about love, and it got him killed. Well, that's the guy who's coming out of the best school for Pharisaism, and he naturally, because he's so zealous for the law and legalism, he becomes the chief persecutor of the early church. He is the hunter of Christians and so he would have them taken away, tortured, killed, imprisoned. That was his job. We meet him at the first Christian martyrdom in history. Stephen is stoned to death by a bunch of zealous Jews and it says Saul was looking at it, right? He was observing it. He was overseeing it. That was his doing. And then a couple of chapters later, in, in chapter eight, we see him traveling along the road to Damascus, road to Damascus, uh, and halfway along the road, he gets knocked off his horse by Jesus, the risen Lord Jesus. And Jesus says to him, "Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me?" Right? You're not just persecuting this bunch of Christians. You're persecuting me because this is my body, right? The church is my body on earth. You're persecuting me. That's going to stop now. You're going to start believing in me, and you're going to believe in me to the extent that you're going to become the greatest church planner and missionary that's ever lived. And all of that happens at once. To have this incredible story of before and after, the terrorist turned missionary, Right? And it's enough to make a motion picture out of it. I hope it's good. I don't know. It might be really bad. If you want the real story, just go to Acts and you can read all about it. But that's the guy who's penning this letter to the church in Rome. And I, I just, I, there's just one little thing I need to say because I'm a little bit of a nerd. I'm a lot of a nerd. And I just need to clear up this really big misconception about Paul. If we're going to read his letter for six months, we just need to know there's this idea that... Um, that his name was Saul and then he became a Christian and his name became Paul, that's that's not the case, okay? So he's always named Saul, he's always named Paul. The name Saul is just Hebrew and the name Paulus is Latin, okay? So what you see in Acts is when when he leaves Jerusalem and goes off to the Latin world on his missionary journey, he starts being referred to as Paul rather than Saul. So that's what's going on there. To give you an example, when I went to America... Uh, to live there for a couple of years. I became a Christian there. I was doing ministry there. I um, I introduced myself as Jono. And everyone looked at me like with blank face because they'd never heard of a name like that before. They were like, Jono? So so, for the whole time I was there, I was John, or my favorite, Johnny. All right, so that's what's happening with Paul. In Jerusalem, at Saul, because that's their language, when he's in other places in the mediterranean he's paul that's what's gone all right so we refer to him as paul because that's what the church has always done and it's him who's written this letter he has an incredible testimony of god's grace and mercy in his life that completely turned him around and so paul a servant of christ jesus called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of god that's the author what about the audience We get the audience in verse 7. So just drop down. He says, To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's writing to the church in Rome. And if you've done any ancient history, you know Rome. It's the center of the world. Uh, And he's writing to this church in Rome. Um, but he's never been there before. So often when he's writing to the Corinthians or the Ephesians, or what, he's writing to churches that he's planted, he's got history with. With Rome, he's never been there. So he's writing to a people he hasn't met, but he's writing to them for a specific purpose. So here's what's going on in Rome. little history lesson. Half of you are going to go to sleep. Half of you love this stuff, right? So let's try and get at least 50-50. In Rome, in the first century, you've got a big Jewish population, and we don't know this for a fact, but I think this is a pretty good guess that the church in Rome was started by some Jews who, in, remember in Acts chapter 2, in Jerusalem, there are all these Jews gathered from the ends of the earth, right, for Pentecost. And at Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, the Spirit descends and all these people from different parts of the world who speak different languages all become Christians at once. And so it's kind of speculated that you had Jews in Jerusalem for Pentecost. They became Christians, went back to their hometown of Rome, and they start the church there. So they've begun this church uh, about the 30s um, AD. And then in, uh, in AD uh, 49, the emperor Claudius, the Roman emperor of the time. Remember, emperors have absolute power. They can do whatever they want he decides that he doesn't like these Christians, these Jews who are now Christians. And we've got the original historical document where he says, I'm expelling these Jews from Rome because of Crestus, C-H-R-E-S-T-U-S. And most scholars believe that he just got the pronunciation wrong for Christus, which is the Latin for Christ. And so he says, on account of this Jesus, whoever that is, I'm getting rid of these people. And so he just expels them. It's just ethnic cleansing, right? The Jews who have become Christians are gone, AD 49. And then between AD 49, when he expels the Jews, and AD 56, 57, when Paul writes the letter to the Romans, you've got about a decade there, you've got Romans, who didn't get expelled because they're Romans, becoming Christians and jumping into that church, and you've got these Jews who are now Christians coming back into Rome because Claudius is hating blonde people now, or whatever. He's onto another thing. He's gotten over the Jewish Christian thing. And so they come back in. And so you've got these Jews who started the church, these Romans, Gentiles, who are in the church, and these Jews coming back to the church. And they're like, all the furniture's been moved around. Our church is not the same church as we left. And so you get this tension. You, you see this in churches today, right? We're the original founding members and all these youth are in here breaking windows, right? And you get, you get tension. You can get church splits, actually. And in fact, when I was thinking about this this week, this is our church, right? This is our 10th year meeting in this building. we we'll our 10th birthday in October. I've been here for six years. And during those six years, the furniture's been moved around a lot. Like literally and metaphorically. Stuff has changed and lots of people have left, who wanted things to be the way that it used to be? In in church planning world that I live in, you, you never want to be the guy that I was coming in after the first guy. Because everyone's invested in him and what he's doing and his vision, and he's the reason they're there for that. And then the new guy comes in and he's changed everything and what's going on. So people have left, but I looked out in the nine o'clock service and saw people, and I can see some now, who have stayed. Who have stayed. I remember being invited over in my first month here by a lovely old couple who said to me, we d-, like just God bless them for their honesty. They just said to me, we don't like what you're doing. Like we don't like your style, but we like your gospel, right? And that's the point. The reason these people, and I, ne- I haven't cracked a tear in like a decade, but I nearly did this morning. When I looked at these guys who are in the service, who have stayed. The reason they've stayed, and I know they've been irritated by me, constantly irritated by me, what I've done, what I've said, stuff I've moved, the new direction, changing the name of the church for God's sake. right? All this stuff is irritating, and they've stayed. Why? Because they treasure the gospel more than they treasure that stuff. That's why Paul wrote this letter. He sees a church that's at war with each other and he wants to give them the most important thing to unify around. So he writes 16 chapters about the gospel. He wants them to be united in the gospel even though they come from totally different worlds with totally different expectations. So that's the main reason. The secondary reason, he wants to unify them in the gospel so that Rome can become the new base of operations for his ministry efforts. So he wants, he wants to go from Rome to Spain. He wants to head west to the ends of the Roman Empire. That's what he wants to do. And so first of all, he needs to know these guys are on my team. These guys believe the same gospel as I believe because there's no point going if they're not backing me up. But he wants to establish that church there so that Rome at the center of the world can be their base to get to Spain. He never gets there. He gets killed because he's a Christian. That that was the plan and God used this book to unify that church so that ultimately the gospel could come to the end of the earth which is literally Caroline Springs. So this book written by Paul to the saints in Rome has had a massive impact on the world at large and on our world here in this church. Which leads us to the purpose of it. And the purpose, as I've said, is to be a beautiful, pure, gospel-centered letter. Some people have tried to make the case that this is Paul's magnum opus of theology, right? This is his his whole theology systematically put into a book. It's not that. He doesn't mention some really important things like the Lord's Supper that we're going to share later, communion. He doesn't mention much about the Christology, like the theology of Jesus' divinity. There's big things that he misses out. That's because he's not trying to give us everything here. He is trying to give us the purest gospel over 16 chapters. And uh, man, I'm just praying. I hope you'll pray that we would get it over the next six months, that it would change us. John Calvin said of the book of Romans, he said this, if we have gained a true understanding of this epistle, that just means letter, if we have gained a true understanding of this letter, we have an open door to all the most profound treasures of scripture. We, We wanna walk through this, and just pick up gold and silver and diamonds and I don't know what's really expensive? Titanium, no? Lithium, I don't know. All the all the all the best treasures that you can find are found in this book. And we're walking through the door into it this morning. So the question is: if this is all about the gospel, I guess the question is some of you might be having for the first time is what is the gospel, right? It's a word that we use frequently it's a genre of music it's I don't know there's different ways of defining it but let's see how Paul defines it in this letter he gives us in the first five verses he gives us the gospel and then he just runs with it for another 16 chapters so so let's read it together verse 1 to 5 he says Paul a servant of Christ Jesus called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God what's the gospel the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures regarding his son, who, as to his earthly, earthly life, was, was a descendant of David, and who, through the holy uh, through the Spirit of holiness, was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom, or well, through him, we receive grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to obedience. obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. So here's what he says. The gospel is this. He says, the gospel has been promised to us through salvation history. So we have this idea, and it's, it's not helped because we say Old Testament, New Testament, Old Covenant, New Covenant. He says, it's not old and new. It's just the fulfillment of what's come before. There's one thread throughout, and this gospel of what Jesus has done is the is the is the coming together, the fulfilment, the satisfaction, the 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 climax of all of that's gone before. So it's it's promised to us in the prophets, in the in the holy scriptures, in the Old Testament. It's come to life in Jesus, and Jesus is who the gospel is all about. He says, verse three, regarding His Son, that's Jesus, who is fully man. And fully God. So he says, according to earth, his earthly life, his fleshly life, he was a descendant of David, right? He's, he's in King David's family line. A thousand years before, through the lineage, he's come. That's his earthly heritage. But he's not just a man. He's not just fully man. He's also fully God. He is God in human flesh. And so he says, through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. He's not saying Jesus became the Son of God when he rose from the dead. He's saying the resurrection is God the Father stamping his approval on the divinity of Jesus. Everyone thought when Jesus died on the cross, he's like, well, that's a dead Messiah, that's a dead end. And Paul says, no, no, no." in his resurrection, God was saying, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. So he says, fully man and fully God. It's all about Jesus. Jesus Christ, our Lord. That is, Jesus the Savior, Jesus the Lord. He says, through him we have received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to obedience to the obedience that comes from faith for his namesake. So here's right at the beginning. Right, here's the thing. I think it was Martin Lloyd, Lloyd-Jones in, in Wales a century ago who spent 38 years preaching through the book of Romans. We're trying to do it in six months. It's crazy. Because we can do a year on five verses. That, l- let me just put it together. He's saying, this Jesus, fully God and fully man, is also fully Saviour and fully Lord. He says, His grace comes to us, which calls us to obedience. And here's what happens a lot with Christians today. They, are, they go one, one way or the other. They say, Jesus is my Saviour. He's forgiven all of my sins. And the, the product of that, when you take away the Lordship of Jesus is, well, we just do whatever we want because we know He's going to forgive us anyway. So you, you live a, a licentious life. That is, you, you take license. You, well, I'm free to do whatever I want. If you just take the Lord bid and say, well, he's my Lord and I've got to be obedient to him, then you become a legalist. And you look at all the people who aren't doing what they should do and you judge them and you forget that he's gracious and forgiving. So Paul wants us to know, if you're going to get the gospel, you need to know this, he's saviour and Lord. He died for your sins. He forgives you. He's gracious and he calls you to take up your cross and follow him. Saviour and Lord. Grace and obedience. And he says all of this has come about for God's glory. Right? Call all the Gentiles to obedience. The obedience that comes from faith for His name's sake. Well, That's what all of this is about. It's about His name's sake. It's about His glory. It's about making Him look as great as He is. It's about making all of life all about Jesus. And this gospel, Paul says, is good news. So if you're listening to all of this and you're not really excited about it, it might be that you don't think it's good. Maybe you don't see it for what Paul at least thinks it is, that it's good news that 's literally the translation of gospel you ain 't on just means good message all right and so you would have in the first century you would have these messengers and they um, so for example, who did we talk about um, Emperor Claudius right Emperor Claudius in the first century he, he and his Roman legions they go and conquer the uh, the Carthaginians right and they subdue them and they take them into slavery and when that happens which happened all over the world they send their gospelers back to Rome they send their good news messengers and they arrive in Rome and say everybody guess what we've slaughtered the Carthaginians we're gonna have a party for a week eat drink and be merry that's that's called delivering the gospel and so Paul has taken that term and he says, that's what I'm doing. But it's not about a king who has conquered a country. It's about a king who has brought a kingdom. Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. So he says, this is good news. This is the gospel. Jesus died, was buried, and has been raised again. And he says, I'm eager to preach this to you, you Romans, you Roman Christians. He says... Um, Where is it? Verse 15, I'm so eager to preach the gospel also to you in Rome. I'm so eager to be that messenger. I want to come to you and proclaim that Jesus is king. And the interesting thing here is he's talking to Christians. He's not saying, I'm eager to go to all those pagans, though he is, but he wants to go to the Christians because here's the truth that some of us miss, even those of us who've been in church for many years. We miss the fact that the Christians need the gospel It's not just those people out there that need to know that Jesus is king. We need to know it. If we don't hear the gospel preached to us and preached to ourselves constantly, we will die spiritually, I promise. So he says, I'm eager to go to you. I want to have a harvest among you, you who are already Christians. That's how good the good news is. So we've got our author, we've got our audience, we've got our purpose. I just want to focus in on two verses, okay? These are two of the most important verses in the entire book. So let's just camp here for a little bit and then I'm done. Verse 16 and 17. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For the gospel... In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So I was camping out in these verses this past month, and I was... I mean, they're verses that I've just heard over and over again. If you're a Christian... You're probably familiar with these verses. Some people cherish them so much. Like there's a guy I met in the cafe down the road there uh, a few weeks ago who had 116 tattooed on his neck. And normally, if you see someone with a neck tattoo, you, you go around the long way around, okay? Because they might murder you. All right, and just <laughs> apologies if that's you. We love you. But this guy, I was like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm too curious. So I said to him, "Is that a Romans thing?" And he was like, "Yeah, Romans 116. i I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Right? That, that's a good reason to have a neck tattoo." In fact, I encourage you, kids. So so this is a foundational verse for you if you're a Christian. Because if you're a Christian, you know the power of the gospel. It's the only reason you're a Christian. You know that it's the gospel that has taken you out of the kingdom of darkness and delivered you into the kingdom of light. And so Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, and I got stuck on that this week because I was like, for the first time I thought, why, why does he need to say that? I mean, why would he be ashamed? If I came to you and I said, this is my friend Albert, and I'm not ashamed of him, you would probably say, what the hell's wrong with Albert? Like, <laughs> right? And that's a bit weird. But if you had an innate sort of hatred of Samoans, then that would make perfect sense. If I came to you and you hated someone and I said, this is my friend Albert, and I'm not ashamed of him, that would mean something to you. And that's what's going on here. He knows that we as human beings, this is not something you've done, this is something you are. Right? We, we. another way of translating ashamed is offended. Right? So he says, I'm, I'm not offended, even though I know by nature we're all offended. And the reason we're offended by the gospel is because the gospel tells us we can't do it. We can't, John Wesley found out, right? You, you can't do enough to earn God's favor, his forgiveness. We can't be good enough. And so whenever a human being, I'm not talking about your personality, I'm talking about the race, right? Whenever a human being is told, you can't do it, you're incapable of it, it's offensive. Especially when it's pertaining to goodness. You cannot be good enough. That's offensive. And so that's why he says, listen, I know this is offensive, but I'm not ashamed of it. I was up at the skate park with my boy Judah on Friday. We were skating around. He was showing me the ropes, because he's better than I am. But there was this one moment where he was on the quarter pipe. Right? Some of you know this. There's a quarter pipe. It's a very steep incline. And then there's the deck where you drop in from. And then there's, there's something called coping, which is like a, a little rail um, that you're meant to kind of grind across. And I can't do it, but um, Judah probably could. He's four, but he's good. all right. But there was this moment where he had his scooter and it was hanging over the edge on this steep incline, and he couldn't get it up over that coping. He was trying to drag it up over onto the deck, and everything in me wanted to go and help him out. But I thought this is like a a chick coming out of the egg moment, right? And I just need to let him win this battle. And he did eventually win it, but there was this period of like a minute where he was so angry, frustrated, and I'm telling you, ashamed that he couldn't get it up himself. He couldn't pull it up over that rail. That's how all of us feel, right? When we're told that you are incapable of this, we feel ashamed and we feel offended. And the message of the gospel is an offense because it tells us not only are you incapable of saving yourself, but that the Son of God had to die because you're that bad. He had to die. That's how bad you are. That's how incapable you are that's an offensive message. Especially, we live in a culture today where it's like, broadly speaking, we, everyone's pretty good. I mean, there are terrorists here and there and bigots there, here and there, and, but mostly people are pretty good. Like, we, we do that universal test, right? Hitler's on the floor, Mother Teresa's about here, most of us are in the top third, all right? And, and on that basis, we're going to be all right. And what the gospel tells you is, no, you are Hitler. That's who you are. And he is you. We're going to get to chapter 3 where Paul says those immortal words, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What do you mean all? Do you mean Mother Teresa as well? She was kind of probably out of, no, her as well. Like everyone is in the same boat. And so that's why he says it makes a lot more sense now that we know our innate offense at this message. He says, I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed because this is power. This is the power of God for salvation. So not only are you incapable, but the same message tells you that you're safe. Yes, you're incapable. Yes, you're safe. It's the same message. That's why it's good news. You got to hear the bad news first, but then it becomes really, really good news. It's the power of of God. It changes us. It saves us. It is our salvation. And you've got to remember, this is the guy telling us this knows this really well. Killing Christians, serving Christians. He knows the difference. He knows that it's the gospel that's made the difference. He knows the power of God for salvation. And he wants us to know it as well. And everyone just look right at me. Here's my one request for the next six months. My prayer, and I pray you this will be your prayer, is that we, in this time, would come face to face with the power of God for salvation. That's what I want. Because I'm telling you, we're, I, I won't do it, but I'll ask you, raise your hand if you believe that the gospel is the power of God. Everyone will be like, oh, yeah. I don't want that. I want you to know it. Come on. There's this real cognitive dissonance, right, between what we believe And what we know, what we espouse and what we experience, I want those things to come together in this time by God's grace, right? We know so that we know the power of the gospel. If you could see with the eyes of pure 2020 reality, you would know it in your own life, in your own experience but we get so clouded by our own insufficiencies and by a a prevailing culture around us that tells us that that power doesn't exist. So let me tell you what's happened. In the last couple hundred years, since the Enlightenment, there has been a massive tide, cultural tide in the West, not in the East, not in other places, right? But in the West, massive cultural tide against knowing the power of the gospel. Right? It was a, a... a cultural force, tour de force, that said, there are no gods. There is nothing supernatural that exists. There is nothing that you can experience outside of your five senses. And that tide has washed over all of us, and it makes us even subconsciously doubt that there is such a thing as God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, or that there is a gospel that is powerful. And so I want us to pray that through these months going ahead together, that the power of the gospel would overcome all of that scepticism, would break through all that prevailing culture. It's not just a modern thing. I know we hear people say, well, these days things are so bad. It wasn't like this in the 50s. It was like this in the 50s, right? It has always been like this, and it's been particularly like this for the last couple of hundred years. I want to tell you a story to finish, and it's about a guy named John Patton. I've told you to buy his autobiography. Most of you have disobeyed me. Um, His autobiography reads like a thriller. It's the autobiography of a man who, in 1858, left a very successful inner-city mission. I think it was in Glasgow. He's, He's a Scottish guy. He left with his young wife to go to Vanuatu, Vanuatu had only been discovered a couple hundred years before by, I think, Sp- Spaniard sailors. And um, when he decided to go and take his young wife, who would die on the island, he would bury her and their child, who died from tropical diseases. Right? When he decided to go, it was 1858, 1839. That's 19 years before the first two missionaries from the London Missionary Society landed on the island of Tanna in Vanuatu. They stepped off the boat, were clubbed to death, and were eaten in view of the people on the ship. The people who populated the native um, people on these islands were cannibals, and as soon as they saw them, they killed them and ate them. 19 years later, not, not 250 years later, right? 20 years later... He decides to go, to leave a successful innocent missionary ministry, to take his young wife and to go to this island. And um, he faces real opposition from people in his church, good people, who are like, you're insane. This ministry is growing. You're going where they eat people. Like, do, do the math. There's one little um, episode I want to read to you just because it's funny. He says, Amongst many who sought to deter me was one dear old Christian gentleman whose crowning argument always was, The cannibals! You will be eaten by cannibals! At last I replied, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving on, and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will arise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. Right? That, that's the kind of guy who takes his wife and goes and ministers to the cannibals. There's a bit of a steel in the backbone there that I, I want. Right? I want some of that. What about you? That's a man who believes in the power of the gospel, come what may. He went on to serve... He came via Melbourne, actually. Um, Came into port in Geelong, left from Melbourne. His family actually live in Hawthorne. I've met them before. But he had this phenomenal ministry in Vanuatu. Eventually, it would bear much fruit. But for years and years, he ministered among people who would literally follow him around with spears and muskets that they got from the explorers threatening to kill him, constantly. Like, I feel stressed in my life with work and kids. I don't know how you survive with people following around saying, we're going to kill you and eat you. Like, that, just read the book. It happens over and over again. And for the first number of years, after he buries his own wife and his kids on the island of Tanna, he has one convert. The power of the gospel is great, but it's only come to bear with one Guy, he takes the name Abraham. And this is what he says in the face of all of the skepticism of our world about the power of the gospel. This is what he writes. I love this. He says, When I have read or heard the shallow objections of irreligious scribblers and talkers, hinting that there was no reality in conversions, right? hinting that there's no power in the gospel, and that mission effort was but waste, Oh, how my heart has yearned to plant them just one week on the island of Tanna with the natural man all around in the person of cannibal and heathen and only the one spiritual man in the person of the converted Abraham, nursing them, feeding them, saving them for the love of Jesus. Then I might just learn how many hours it took to convince them that Christ in man was a reality after all. All the scepticism of Europe would hide its head in foolish shame and all its doubts would dissolve under one glance of the new light that Jesus and Jesus alone pours from the converted cannibal's eye. That's the power of the gospel. And it's not just a power that was at work in converting the terrorists, murderer Saul. And it wasn't just at work in the cannibal in Vanuatu. It's at work today in Caroline Springs. It's at work in this church. And we need to pray more because it's not something we can contrive. It's something that God does. The wind blows where it wills, right? And, and so we need to pray that God would be pleased to do that. A few weeks ago, some of you stood in, in the ocean as we baptized Brett Right? And we've, we've been talking to him every time we talked to him about the gospel. He would absolutely rebuff us. And he's a pretty big guy and it was intimidating. He would, he would just say outright, I don't need that, I'm a good person. Right? Same offence. Same offence. Those were his words exactly. I don't need that stuff, I'm a good person without it. And yet, we stood in the waters of baptism with him as he proclaimed himself to be saved by the power of the gospel. Now he has terminal cancer, or at least they tell him that he keeps living, right? But he has cancer. Was it because he has cancer and he's afraid of death, or is it because he's got a wife that keeps nagging him about it? No, it's not any of those things. It's not. Any, it's the power of the gospel that saved him, and it's the same for every single one of us. I just want. I'm appealing to you to pray. Pray that we would see this power. We would experience this power. I've asked Albert, as part of his placement here, to spend a good amount of his time, particularly at the beginning of the year, planning and preparing to run the Alpha Course. Some of you know the Alpha Course is this massive global movement where you invite people in, you feed them, you, 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 relate, you, you build relationships with them and you present the good news to them. And we're going to be doing that a couple of times a year. God willing, two, three times a year. Pray that we would see the power of the gospel at work through that. Through that, through this, through your lives. Making all of life all about Jesus. Please pray that we would see it. We'd be astonished by it and encouraged by it. Let me pray for us. Father, we want to see you at work in our midst. We've seen... Uh, This morning and heard about the ways that you've been working through centuries, through millennia. And you're still on the throne. You're still our Savior and our Lord. And so we pray from the throne that you would send grace and mercy and miracles. That you'd be powerfully at work. Ministering the gospel to those here who already believe it. And to those who don't, that all of us would experience the power of the gospel for salvation.
1: And pray in your good name. Amen.